good to be with you this morning. What a privilege it is to worship together. We're going to prepare to open up the Bible. And without uh, God's Spirit, we'll do so in vain. But if we put our faith in the Savior and His promises to work through His Word, which, are, which is the way that He primarily works, God will do something great, and so I pray that you would pray with me expectingly for God to do something great this morning through the preaching of his word. Would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the great hope that we have been given through your mercy, um, made tangible through Jesus Christ, that no one here whose faith is in Christ this morning stands condemned that no one here whose faith this morning is in Christ is guilty, that through faith in Christ alone, the guilty are washed clean, and that is an eternal washing. So use your word this morning, Lord, as we open to it to find this awesome Savior, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this week I uh, had a chance to watch one of my... um, all-time favorite childhood movies with my children. Uh, maybe you know it, the, the Little Rascals. Uh, I grew up watching the modern colored version. This week, the boys and I had a chance to watch the black and white version, and they absolutely loved it. Um, I don't remember seeing this scene in the black and white version, but in the colored version, there's this, there's this scene where Alfalfa is thinking about Delilah if you never saw the movie, Alfalfa is this cute little boy who has a crush on this cute little girl. The two of them are lovers. And in the relationship, they were experiencing this uh, tension. And so Alfalfa, the movie pictures Alfalfa up alone on this hill, thinking to himself about the love of his life, wondering, uh, wondering or not whether Delilah actually still loved him. And so to, to figure that out and answer the question, he picked up the flower, and you maybe know what he said. He plucked off the first petal, and she said, she loves me. Second petal, she loves me not. Third petal, she loves me. Fourth petal, she loves me not. And alfalfa went straight through the entire plant until the very last petal and bless his little heart. That boy picked uh, the last one which said she loves me. But uh, what struck me about the scene was the amount of hardship that that little boy Alfalfa had in his heart as he navigated and felt the burden of uncertain love. As he suffered, he was in anguish over the idea and chance of his lover not indeed loving him. And as he rode the roller coaster of emotions, it was almost too much for that little boy to handle. Why would I start off by telling you this? Uh, well, because if you think about it, This is what many of us at many times are tempted to do with our relationship with God. The way that we think about it and or treat it, I prayed regularly this week, God loves me. I got into a fight with my spouse, he loves me not. I got up early and read my Bible multiple days this week, spent time with God, he loves me. But the kids were acting up the next day, It sucked. The day sucked. I got angry, lost my temper. He loves me not. I had a chance to uh, talk about my faith with my coworker this week. He loves me. 
But then I binge watched Netflix and was watching a show that probably wasn't good for my heart way too long. He loves me not. I went to church, went to a Bible study, picked up a piece of garbage off the street, gave five bucks to a homeless man. He loves me. But then the car broke down. We got this huge unexpected bill. I'm not sure if we're going to hit our budget or not this month. I'm doubting if God will provide. He loves me not. Whether we know it or not, at certain times, it is still very tempting for all of us to wonder if indeed God loves us. You see, by assessing our status and God's love on the basis of merit and feeling, there comes with this methodology the weight and burden of uncertain love. And let me just say, you know as much as I do how awesome Satan is at this. Whether we intellectually grasp the gospel or not, it is still very tempting to believe that God's love can be taken for us. That Jesus, it's really hard to believe that Jesus indeed because of his free grace loves us at our worst as the same amount that he loves us at our best. That God the Father is actually delighted in giving mercy to sinners while they are indeed doing the very things they ought not to do. And so what do we do on these up and down systems of merit? We strive to assure he loves me. But I'm saying here this morning that according to the scriptures, this is indeed no way to live before God at all. Actually, uh, we're all on a spiritual journey right now. And if you're in the faith, some are further than others, but if you're in the faith, this is indeed what we're all learning. Here's the question. What is the Christian life? Here's the answer. The Christian life is an ever-growing and ever-increasing understanding of the sufficiency of Christ and the power of the cross, which indeed is God's promise of guaranteed and eternal love. It's the best news in the whole entire world, and this is what I'd like to unpack for us this morning. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open and I'd like to explore this idea, how we can understand God and the centrality of Christ in our salvation. Three things I'd like to show us from the text this morning are this. Number one, God's free grace. Number two, the holy God. And number three, the humble and merciful Savior. The free grace, the holy God the humble and merciful Savior. We're going to begin our time up front together by reading the text. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, I, the Lord, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people around, all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on, on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look at, look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountain, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. My brothers and sisters, this indeed is the word of God. Very thankful for it. We're moving right now to point number one. I'd like to show you the free grace. We have um, now reached a new section in this book. Last week, we uh, previously had arrived at this location. If you remember back to chapter 18, the text says that Moses was encamped at the mountain of God. That is here. But I say that this text here marks a new section of the book because it's the one that leads up to the everlasting, I'm sorry, the establishment and culmination of the special covenant relationship between God and his people. This is pretty much the theme that has been developing throughout the entire story of the book, the relationship between God and his people. In chapters 4 to 12, you might remember how God displayed his work and power and free love to save Israel from Egypt. In chapters 13 through 18, we had on display for us Israel's journey through the wilderness as freed people, freed to God, as they journeyed to the promised land. However, you might have also noticed all that Israel has done so far in this developing relationship is grumble. 
And so now here they are in this scene. They're facing another pit stop along the way, not yet making it to, to Canaan, the promised land. And you could just imagine what the people are thinking to themselves. Really, Moses, are we really going to stop again? Are we really stopping again, Moses? We've stopped almost five times. Why have we not yet just inherited the land? One author named J.A. Motyer said this, The contrast between the promised land, a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey, and this wild and mountainous terrain could have hardly been more depressing. Yet we see that Sinai was, in fact, the primary destination of Israel's journey from Egypt that the Lord had targeted. God's people here have now been brought to the place where they could hear and receive his law. The Israelites in Egypt had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and now the Lord had brought them as the primary destination of their pilgrimage to this place where they can hear his voice and learn his law. What are we to know about this Sinai destination here? Is that God intentionally brought his people to Sinai before they got to the promised land. In other words, this location here was no mistake. You might remember back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 12, God said uh, this to Moses before any of this happened, before Moses went to Egypt. But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought these people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God has brought his people Israel, here to this place, alone in this desert, in this developing story with the theme of relationship to reveal two main things. Here they are. Number one, himself, and number two, what is their salvation? God wants his people on a deeper level to understand who he is and how they were saved. We're going to get to the who he is part in point number two, but if you look at the text with me, you'll actually see what he wants Israel to know or grasp concerning their salvation, which is also a twofold thing. We are to know two things concerning salvation. Number one, verse five, that obedience is necessary. But point two, more importantly than this, as a matter of first importance and priority, that Israel understand that it was by grace that they were saved apart from anything that they had ever done. Look at verse 4, what God says. You yourselves have seen what I, emphasis on I, did to the Egyptians, and how I, emphasis on I, bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. First and foremost, God wants Israel to realize that they did not work for him, that they in Egypt did nothing to provoke his love or his rescue from, from slavery in Egypt. Who is it that saved Israel? God. Who is it that did not save Israel? Israel. James, this is pretty simple, man. Can you uh, graduate the teaching? I cannot. Here's why. Because this is the foundation of Israel's salvation, and so it is ours. Even in the first chapter, or verse of this chapter, 
which is a whole entire chapter preparing us to receive the Ten Commandments, God's law, next week, which we will get to, what we have here is Moses the author starting off this section of text by saying this. On the third new moon, which simply means the third month, after, emphasis on after, the people had gone out of the land of Egypt. In other words... It is so important, Israel, that you get this, that saving, saving grace came to you before the law. That same author, J.A. Motyer, continued on in his commentary to say this. It was in pursuit of this covenant promise that the Lord came to his people in their distress in Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 24. Not to make them his sons, because Israel was already his firstborn son. Chapter 4. For God said, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Can you see how it was not that Israel was ordered to obey in order that they might enter the covenant promise, but that already being within the covenant promise, they were called to obey? Why? So they might enjoy the benefits and privileges of being God's. I'm drawing out this point so plainly because what is true of the old covenant is also true of the new covenant, meaning that we as God's people enter in on exactly the same basis of grace and continue on in this covenant through grace expressed in faith appropriately, a.k.a. what that is the role of obedience. God's people experienced God's salvation, which was infinitely and far greater than anything they could have ever imagined, and it required a strength greater than, that, than they could have ever had. Israel was not welcomed in to his presence and accepted into relationship by their own merit, but by what? God's merit. God brought Israel to himself. James, you've said this three times now. Why are you pushing the point so hard? Because in the context of faith and obedience, this is the very thing that you and I are so easy to forget. That it is by grace and only grace that we are saved apart from the law. That grace always comes before obedience. And Satan comes to tempt us to use the law as a means by which we keep our status before God. We are all the time tempted to measure and preserve our salvation based on what we could do for God or have not done for God. But I can't stress it enough. I'm just going to continue to save it. God did not partner with Israel to save them. God saved Israel alone. God didn't look to his people in Egypt and said, I'm going to wave across the sky and wait for you to choose me. He didn't say, I'm going to wait for you to understand me, for things to click with you. you got to clean yourself up before I save you. Start obeying me. No, no, no. Here we have God saying, I saw you in Egypt in all of your distress, in your helplessness, your inability to save yourself, in all of your slavery and bondage, and out of my free love and grace. Because I just loved you, I brought you to myself. Please get this. Israel did nothing for salvation. And neither do we. 
Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is the best news in the world. God's love is 150, 200 times infinity percent free. Uh, so uh, in 2009, after I became a Christian, I spent a year of following God. That led to 2010. I had a year of following him zealously. I was mentored by my uncle. My uncle was mentoring me. About a year in, he said to me, James, would you like to do a fast with me? I said, I don't even know what that is. He said, well, that's a, that's a time when you uh, abstain from food to pray and spiritually stir a hunger for God. And instead of uh, eating food, you feast on God's word. I said, wow, that sounds great. I love him. Let's do it. So, um, so we start fasting. Day one was pretty good. I kind of avoided the hunger, felt pretty close to God. Um, day two was, you know, hunger started to kick in. I started to really try to fight it. Day three, I was starving, but feeling really close to God. But day four, when I got to day four, I was really feeling it the most. Day four, I made it all the way to the nighttime. And if you've ever fasted or abstained from food, you know that nighttime, or even dieted, you know that nighttime's the worst, okay? So I'm on my bed, I'm fighting the hungries. But I couldn't just help but imagine this big, juicy, delicious, glutinous cheeseburger. I'm like, whoa, this thing looks good, man. I'm salivating, thinking about the cheeseburger. I'm trying to sleep. God help me, cheeseburger. <laughs> All right. I came to my wit's end, and I, and I uh, said, I'm going. I'm done with this. I am going uh, to a fast food line. And so I darted out the door. I went to the nearest drive-thru. Uh, I probably ordered three cheeseburgers. I forget exactly what it was, but I probably also ate all of it. My belly was bloated. I got the meat sweats. I went home. I went home to approach God to pray to him about ending my fast. And you know what I felt? Condemnation. I felt condemnation because I didn't keep my word for God or didn't perform well enough for him. And so probably what I would have done, because it was the trend of my first few years as a Christian, still tempts me up into this day, is the next day work to try harder and prove myself to God that I really do indeed love him. Which actually isn't the gospel. I did not understand that there is a sufficiency of the cross, that Christ's work for me is enough. And this has nothing to do about me gaining God's favor, but all about me just enjoying him freely to worship him. What did Adam do for God before being made and then dropped into paradise in the garden? Uh, he did nothing. What did Abraham do to receive God's calling and promise? Nothing. What did Paul, the murderer, do to be loved and chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus? Nothing. How about the thief on the cross next to Jesus as he died in his punishment for sin? When Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise, what did that man do for God? Nothing. 
But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The scriptures describe our spiritual state before God as dead. What can dead people do for God? Nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace that you have been saved. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you this morning from this first point is that God loves you just as you are. You have to do nothing for him to be accepted by him. You don't have to know about this faith. You don't have to understand all things. You don't have to live for him or have a great track record. The work of the cross is enough. God's love is free, always has been free, and will always continue to be free. Hey, if you're a Christian, I just want to remind you again, Christ paid it all. That saving grace that came to you to make you a new person is still the same saving grace that keeps you and will keep you until the day of glory. In other words, like God's grace, when it came to you, was free. It hasn't changed. It's still free. Before you did anything for God, before you learned about theology, before you learned intricately the Bible, before you stepped into ministry, before you learned about the church, he loved you. Hasn't changed. Salvation really is truly and only a work of God. Oh, Christian, lay down and rest in the free and unchanging, guaranteed grace that you get through Christ, your Savior. If you're not a Christian or you're on the, you're on the margin, you're thinking about coming to Christ for all of everyone, please hear these words of Isaiah chapter 55, which illustrate the free call. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which does, is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for our God will abundantly pardon. The call of the gospel is free. God wants you just as you are. Obedience is absolutely essential here in this text. It's necessary, but in light of God's free grace, I want you to see it as an act of worship and an act of an opportunity to enjoy God, to take pleasure in being his. It is not rules. We don't use it to earn God. We lay down and rest in the Savior and see the law as a way to enjoy him. Amen.
That's point number one, the free grace. I'd like to show you now, as we move into the second portion of the text, the holy God. It's, it's pretty interesting to consider um, what happens next in the story. After Moses goes up on the mountain and, and comes down to report to the people, God's people, what God indeed says, in verse 5, God says to the people through Moses this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. And so God's people hear this, and, and look how they respond. Verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That is pure confidence. That is, heck yeah, we got this. That is, we got this. Oh, Israel, dear Israel, my heart is broken for you. Are you sure you want to say that? I don't think you understand, oh Israel, how depraved you are in your being and how holy this God actually is. You should get this now, Israel. Ever since you've been saved from Egypt, all throughout the journey, all you have done is grumble against God with faithlessness and wish you weren't his. In fact, you've actually said yourselves that you wish you belonged in Egypt back as pharaohs. And so why are they so encouraged in the faith to say such a thing as this? Ready for the answer? Because they're riding the emotional high. They are riding the emotional high. They have just been given, just two chapters ago, military victory. They had a God moment where things in their life went well. And so they experienced the success and say, we got this. They had an emotional God moment after not having one for a while, experiencing doubt. And then in the emotional moment, they say, we got this. I'm going to live for God. I will obey God. Oh, this is the most tragic thing I have seen in the church. Feeling God after not feeling him for a while. And then coming up with the encouragement to say, I'm all in, I'm going to live for God. What is it that Israel cannot see? It's that, well, maybe even though they're most likely truly being authentic and real, and so are many people, they could not see how depraved they actually are in their being, how they are unable to keep God's holy law in light of actually how holy God is. We are, will, and will always be prone to wander from God and do it. Israel doesn't get that yet. They think they could be God's based on obedience, and so they're confident we are going to walk the walk. What happens the next day? God comes down. And in verse 16, it says, that when he did, flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder occurred, and a thick cloud that enveloped the mountain descended, and a very loud trumpet blasted. And then after all that happened, what did the people do? At the end of verse 16, 
They trembled. What happened to the confidence? Well, what happened is that in the sight of holiness, they were sobered to know that they were not. That even after all they did to obey Moses and those laws in preparation to encounter God as he arrived, that they still could not approach the holy throne. That's what these commandments in this text are about. Before God came down, he told Moses, hey, tell the people, clean yourselves up, watch your clothes, abstain from sexual intimacy, set limits around the mountain, wash your clothes, just means prepare to be pure and show reverence. Same way a bride would prepare to meet her groom on the wedding day, the call for celibacy was a call for utter and complete attention and devotion to, uh, to meet God, to keep God and his holiness at the forefront of their minds. And this boundary call against the mountain was to keep them safe at a distance so they would not die. What happened? Well, the people prepared themselves. Everyone listened to the commandments. God came down, and yet the people trembled. Chapter 20, verse 19, the people said, Moses, please, you speak to us, lest the Lord speak to us, and we die. Um, what we have displayed for us here in the second part of the story is an illustration of the eternal separation that has been established between God and man due to sin. How we, even at our best, when we obey without the perfect righteousness of Christ, cannot approach the holy God. J.A. Motyer continued on in his commentary to say this, the holiness of God is such that no human self-preparation can ever satisfy its demands. Our holiness is, God, is not God's holiness. What we are learn, learning here alongside of Moses and Israel is that the initial exclusion from the presence of the Lord is a paradigm of the reality that sin excludes and holiness threatens. Do you remember what happened to Moses when he met the Lord in chapter 3 at the burning bush? It was just one bush. It was on fire. You remember? Moses couldn't even bear the, the sight of God, and so he, he laid prostrate on the, on the ground, and he covered his face. We're not talking about a bush here. We're talking about an entire mountain that was trembling. Uh, in the Bible, fire often represents the presence of holiness. We see this illustrated even after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and were kicked out of the garden. What did the garden represent? God's presence. Because of sin, they were no longer allowed in. The entrance to the gates back into the garden were guarded by two flaming swords. Sin did this. Sin created an inseparable, or sorry, a, a, a separation between us and God. After preparing to meet God, if you look in verse 13, um, the trumpet blasted. The, the, the trumpet blasted here. Israel was called during the trumpet blast to, to come up and meet God, but they couldn't. Why? Uh, because of his holy terror. Are there any instruments in the New Testament such as a trumpet blowing? Indeed there is. Where is the trumpet blowing in Revelation chapter 8? in the heavens on the day of judgment as Christ comes to judge the living and the dead and all of his holy terror. 
where sinners will, leave, will, will indeed stand before the holy God. It's not a joke. And so um, I say this with gentleness, but as, I'm just trying to be as biblical as possible so you could just see the text as, as it is. Two points of application come to us from this text this morning. First, this is a warning to those who presume upon the mercy of God. And second, this is a warning to those who find hope and confidence in their good deeds as a way to stand before God with confidence. Uh, for those of you who presume upon God's mercy and use the death of Christ as a ticket to sin, I say to you, you have no clue what you're doing or who indeed you will stand in front of on the day of judgment. You'll stand naked and exposed. There is no grace for those who presume upon the mercy of God. And to the moral man or woman who thinks that they're a good enough person to get into the, the pearly gates, I hope that you could see from, from this text that it is impossible. That Romans chapter 3, verse 11 actually says these words, no one is righteous, no one, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's called the doctrine of depravity that no one can earn God through good works because of our depraved nature. Woe to you who claim to see God through your religion and good deeds. You're blind. Woe to you who think you only need a little bit of Christ and not the whole Christ for your entire self. You don't understand the holiness of God, the all-consuming fire of God. You see, it is wrong to say I got this, and it is also wrong to say, well, screw this, no one does, what's the use? But it is right to say, God is holy, I'm not holy, I need grace and mercy for every ounce of me, and then there comes the good news, the heart of God for the lowly, the fact that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. John chapter 9, then Jesus declared, it is for judgment that I have come into the world. So that the blind may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and they asked him, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim to see, your guilt remains. In other words, the Pharisees thought they could see and know God through the practice of religion and being a good enough person. But the sinners that Christ came to unblind to allow them to see came to Christ knowing they could not see God because of their sin struggle. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came for sinners like you and me, and he delights to extend mercy to those who know they need it. Our God, indeed, is a merciful God, and we see that through the cross of Christ. I'd like to finish off this sermon by expounding upon that. We're moving, lastly, to the humble and merciful Savior, I want to end our time by flipping over actually to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 12, because in Hebrews chapter 12, there is this same story um, illustrated and told within the lens of the New Covenant. The author, although he remains unknown, speaks to the church who believe in Christ and says these words, for you have not come 
to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given to them. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But here's what you, church, have come to. Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, a.k.a. heaven. To the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the Old Testament, people, because of the holiness of God, had to stay at a distance. In the New Testament, through the blood of Christ, sinners, by and through his free grace and salvation, are brought to the throne room of God where they can experience a guaranteed of love and intimacy. This picture here is a picture of heaven for sinners who are brought into the pearly gates by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus in The New Testament is the better covenant mediator than Moses, the better high priest than Moses and any of the people there. He is the the lamb who was slain, and he indeed is the image of the invisible God who no longer descends on mountains to show his holy fire and keep sinners at bay. But God in the New Testament comes to see the need for his people to be saved only by him, and so he can condescend to them in grace with humility and mercy through the person and work of Jesus. And so we have God not consuming a mountain and descending with fire, but we have God, the humble man, despised and rejected by sinners, dying for them to grant to them access into heaven and a guaranteed of love by and through his grace. This is the significance of the sinlessness of Christ and the the sinful death that Christ had to endure on our behalf. Christ lived a sinless life and made up for the sin that you and I have committed against God. And then he died a death on the cross, enduring the eternal wrath of God, so that those who have faith in him would no longer ever wonder if God loves them or loves them not. If God is angry or is angry not. For God laid on Christ his full displeasure and wrath and rose him again from the dead so that those who turn to the Savior shall indeed have the promise of everlasting life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, O saints, you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's original purpose in the garden, though it was broken and according to man's efforts, failed longed for intimacy with his creation 
And he came to redeem that intimacy by and through Jesus Christ. And God through Jesus Christ is who we get. This morning, I want to invite you to throw yourself on Christ. Not just a little. Uh, That won't work. But throw all of yourself on Christ. With a true heart, repent of your sin. Place all of your faith in the Savior. And the promise is that Christ's work is sufficient and enough alone to save you. God's grace is really this free. And it is really this good. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that this morning we come to the place where there are innumerable angels gathered around your throne. We, through your love and mercy, are brought to the throne of Christ. And though we come with humility, we also come with bold confidence, knowing that the righteous blood of Christ has justified us fully, and now through the Spirit we have been adopted as sons and daughters, calling you Daddy. You will always accept us through Christ. You will always love us through Christ. Your grace is free. It will always be free. Oh God, I pray that through the gospel we would then indeed be free. We love you and want to enjoy you. Bless us with your commandments next week, I pray in your name. Amen.